Wealth Attraction Research War W-A-R Respective Values Wealth Attraction Research W-A-R War Respective Values You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research W-A-R War Respective Values Presented by Hakeem Alipokis Alexander On Spreaker Social Podcasting Wisdom Social Audio Inc. And Call-In Social Podcasting Presented for World Reading Club In association with ExercisingYourMind.com And Uniquilibrium This edition's reading focus comes to us from The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, 1776. This is part three of chapter 11, titled, you're going to love this one, of the variations in the proportion between the respective values of that sort of produce which always affords rent and of that which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent. That's right. That's the title of part three. You want to hear it again? Okay, good. Of the variations in the proportion between the respective values of that sort of produce which always affords rent and of that which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent. There you go. That was just for you. All right. So this is, I'm actually going to take a while, um, who is uh, to read this. Usually, um, I have been reading both two other books after this. So it would be Wealth of Nations, and then followed by The Little Book of Economics, and then followed by How Money Works. But because chapter 11 has been so long, I had to read part one and part two by themselves, and also because I'm shattering with lots of commentary, it took longer. Today, however, I'm going to push through this with as little as my personal opinion as possible, unless I'm clarifying something, or if I come across something I don't understand, then I'm going to clear it up before I move on. But other than that, I'm going to do my best to sizzle through this and control my excitement. All right. So, part three, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, because I've got at least two more readings to do today. So, here it goes. Part three, Wealth of Nations. Of the variations in the proportion between the respective values of that sort of produce which always affords rent and of that which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent. The increasing abundance of food in consequence of increasing improvement and cultivation must necessarily increase the demand for every part of the produce of land which is not food and which can be applied either to use or to ornament. In the whole progress of improvement, it might therefore be expected there should only be one variation in the comparative values of those two different sorts of produce. The value of that sort, which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent, should constantly rise in proportion to that which always affords some rent. 
As art and industry advance, the materials of clothing and lodging, the useful fossils and minerals of the earth, the precious metals and the precious stones should gradually come to be more and more in demand, should gradually exchange for a greater and greater quantity of food, or in other words, should gradually become dearer and dearer. This accordingly has been the case with most of these things upon most occasions, and would have been the case with all of them upon all occasions, if particular accidents had not upon some occasions increased the supply of some of them in a still greater proportion than the demand. The value of a free stone quarry, for example, will necessarily increase with the increasing improvements and populations of the country round about it, especially if it should be the only one in the neighborhood. But the value of a silver mine, even though there should not be another within a thousand miles of it, will not necessarily increase with the improvement of the country in which it is situated. The market for the produce of a freestone quarry can seldom extend more than a few miles round about it, and the demand must generally be in proportion to the improvement and population of that small district. But the market for the produce of a silver mine may extend over the whole known world unless the world in general unless the world in general therefore be advancing in improvement and population the demand for silver might not be all increased by the improvements even of a large country in the neighborhood of the mine even though the world in general were improving yet if in the course of its improvement new mines should be discovered much more fertile than any which had been known before though the demand for silver would necessarily increase yet the supply might increase in so much a greater proportion that the real price of that metal might gradually fall that is any given quantity a pound weight of it for example might gradually purchase or command a smaller and smaller quantity of labor or exchange for a smaller and smaller quantity of corn the principal part of the subsistence of the labor uh, or of the laborer right Good. so again this is another issue of supply and demand right the more of the silver that's in the economy no matter where it is no matter how valuable people think it is even if the demand increases if there's a whole bunch of it it's going to exchange for less and less continuing the great market for silver in the commercial and civilized part of the world the great market for silver is the commercial and civilized part of the world. If by the general progress of improvement the demand of this market should increase, while at the same time the supply did not increase in the same proportion, the value of silver would gradually rise in proportion to that of corn. Any given quantity of silver would exchange for a greater and greater quantity of corn. Or, in other words, the average money price of corn would gradually become cheaper and cheaper. If, on the contrary, the supply by some accident should increase for many years together in a greater proportion than the demand, that metal would gradually become cheaper and cheaper, or, in other words, the average money price of corn would, in spite of all improvements, gradually become dearer and dearer. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. If, on the contrary, the supply by some action should increase for many years altogether in a greater proportion than the demand, that metal would gradually become cheaper and cheaper. That's right. Or, in other words, the average money price of corn would, in spite of all improvements, gradually become dearer and dearer. So corn would become more expensive. Huh. 
Yeah, if, uh, if by the general progress of improvement, the demand of this market should increase, while at the same time the supply did not increase in the same proportion, yeah, the value of silver would gradually rise in proportion to that of corn, and any given quantity of silver would exchange for a greater and greater quantity of corn. I mean, that is so stupid. I have to refrain from my commentary here, though, because the whole thing about silver and metals and just the value that people put on them, there's no one can, if anyone can actually seriously answer the question of why this is so, of why metals are valued like that, not just beyond stuff that they are. Because these are these are already no because these are these are arbitrary right these are things that actually don't really matter and I've already written them down right so you have you have utility right beauty and scarcity utility is not really on the highest list of silver and gold right they're not they don't really have that much utility right they're, the most utility that they have is in beauty or aesthetics right and then we can we can then take that over to uh, spiritual or magical or religious, right? So those all fit in the same category. Ornamentation, but it still goes back to beauty, right? Um, but and, and scarcity, why would that matter? Why would it matter that because something is scarce, a piece of metal, that, that it would raise the value of it? So besides that, right? And then and in modern times, of course, this doesn't matter. Of course, we use gold and silver and technology and still in ornamentation and things like that. But please, if someone can actually tell me why silver and gold are valued at the way they are when they're, it's really not that big, big of a deal. There's actually no scarcity of it, especially now in modern times when mining uh, technology and things like that has increased. This, I mean, I, I think I'm starting to get closer to the answer to that, but, and it, it's more on the um, religious, magical, ceremonial, technological side, which are, you know, in some ways the same thing, as we'll find out if I, when I continue reading Babylon's Banksters, but um, that's, that's the real thing that we have to get at. Why is that? And there's a real, there's a real issue with that. There's also... Uh, I did read an article yesterday about bricks from kitco.com. So kitco, K-I-T-C-O dot C-O-M, kitco.com. You should check out that site and look at their article that they recently did on August 29th about the BRICS summit. And you'll get an idea about the true nature of money and the problems with it, private banks, the Federal Reserve and things like that. So I got to continue because I wanted to get through this. All right, so continuing. Um, so, okay, said, so if by the general progress of improvement, the demand of this market should increase, while at the same time the supply did not increase in the same proportion, the value of silver would gradually rise in proportion to that of corn. Any given quantity of silver would exchange for a greater and greater quantity of corn, right? Or in other words, the average money price of corn would gradually become cheaper and cheaper, right? The money price of corn while the money price of silver gets more expensive simply because silver is less uh, available and more in demand just think about how ridiculous that is for a second but the connect make the connection there right corn is actually has more in use value just so, so does water right and so they therefore should have more exchange value as well because they're useful meaning people can consume them to sustain their bodies 
silver doesn't and gold does not have that utility. We need to be really clear about this and the origin and use of money. All right. If, on the contrary, the supply by some accident should increase for many years together in a greater proportion, then the demand that metal would gradually become cheaper and cheaper. In other words, the average money price of corn would, in spite of all improvements, gradually become dearer and dearer. So remember, dearer is another word for expensive. But if, on the other hand, the supply of the metal should increase nearly in the same proportion as the demand, it would continue to purchase or exchange for nearly the same quantity of corn, and the average money price of corn would, in spite of all improvements, continue very nearly the same. This is also very important right here. The Sintawi says that it would continue to purchase or exchange for nearly the same quantity of corn. Purchase or exchange. Remember, back to bartering, the original source of the use of money for convenience, right? Purchase or exchange, same thing here. These are really the same things, they're not. The only thing that happened is that money, coins, cowrie shells, whatever the heck it is people are using, came as a go-between, either because of time differences or of the availability of something or the transport uh, difficulties of getting something to someone. That's it. Continuing. These three seem to exhaust all the possible combinations of events which can happen in the progress of improvement and during the course of the four centuries preceding the present, if we may judge by what has happened in both France and Great Britain, each of those three different combinations seem to have taken place in the European market and nearly in the same order too in which I have here set them down. Different effects of the progress of improvement upon three different sorts of new produce. Different effects of the progress of improvement upon three different sorts of rude produce. These different sorts of rude produce may be divided into three classes. The first comprehends those which it is scarce in the power of human industry to multiply at all. The second, those which it can multiply in proportion to the demand. The third, those in which the efficacy of industry is either limited or uncertain. In the progress of wealth and improvement, the real price of the first may rise to any degree of extravagance and seem not to be limited by any certain boundary. That of the second, though it may rise greatly, has, however, a certain boundary beyond which it cannot well pass for any considerable time together. That of the third, though it is a natural tendency, its natural tendency is to rise in the progress of improvement, yet in the same degree of improvement it may sometimes happen even to fall, sometimes to continue the same, and sometimes to rise more or less, according as different accidents render the efforts of human industry in multiplying this sort of room produce more or less successful. The first sort. The first sort of rude produce, of which the price rises in the progress of improvement, is that which is scarce in the power of human industry to multiply at all. 
It consists in those things which nature produces only in certain quantities, and which, being of a very perishable nature, it is impossible to accumulate together the produce of many different seasons. Such are the greater part of rare and singular birds and fishes, many different sorts of game, almost all wildfowl, all birds of passage in particular, as well as many other things. When wealth and the luxury which accompanies it increase, the demand for those is likely to increase with them, and no effect of human industry may be able to increase the supply much beyond what it was before the increase of the demand. Oh, well, you know, we have as humans fixed that with capos, right? You know, the, the confined animal feeding operations, right? So we have put a stop to that because now we got way more than anybody could possibly need. And if anybody thinks that there's a food shortage problem, you need to check it a little bit. There's a food distribution problem because there's way more of it than we can all possibly need. All right. <clears throat> Continuing. The quantity of such a commodity of such wait the quantity of such commodities therefore remaining the same or nearly the same while the competition to produce them is continually in increasing their price may rise to any degree of extravagance and seem not to be limited by any certain boundary uh, seem not to be limited by any certain boundary right the extravagance and seems not to be limited by any certain boundary. If woodcocks should become so fashionable as to sell for 20 guinea a piece, no effort of human industry could increase the number of those brought to market, much beyond what it is at present. The high price paid by the Romans in the time of their greatest grandeur for rare birds and fishes may, in this manner, easily be accounted for. These prices, right? were these prices were not the effects of the low value of silver in those times but the high value of such rarities and curiosities as human industry could not multiply at pleasure the real value of silver was higher at Rome for some time before and after the fall of the republic than it is through the great part of europe at present three sesterti equal to about six pence sterling was the price which the Republic paid for the modius or peck of the tithe wheat of Sicily. This price, however, was probably below the average market price, the obligation to deliver their wheat at this rate being considered as a tax upon the Sicilian farmers. When the Romans, therefore, had occasion to order more corn than the tithe of wheat amounted to them, they were bound by capitulation to pay for the surplus at the rate of four sesterti, or eight pence sterling, the peck eight pence sterling the peck and this had probably been reckoned the moderate and reasonable that is the ordinary or average contract price of those times it is equal to about one and twenty shilling the quarter eight and twenty shillings the quarter was before the late years of scarcity the ordinary contract price of english wheat which in quant quality is inferior to the sicilian and generally sells for a lower price in the european market the value of silver, therefore, in those ancient times must have been to its value in the present as three or four inversely. That is, three ounces of silver would then have purchased the same quantity of labor and commodities which four ounces will do at present. When we read Pliny, therefore, 
that Seius bought a white nightingale as a present for the Empress Agrippa, uh, uh, Agrippina at the price of 6,000 sesterti, equal to about 50 pounds of our present money, and that Asinius seller purchased a sir mullet at the price of 8,000 sesterti, equal to about 66 pounds sterling, uh, 66 pounds 13 shillings and 4 pence of our present money. The extravagance of those prices, how much soever may surprise us, is apt, notwithstanding, to appear to us about one-third less than it really was. Their real price, the quantity of labor and subsistence, which was given away for them, was about one-third more than their nominal price is apt to express to us in the present times. Sayus gave, gave for the nightingale the command of a quantity of labor and subsistence equal to what 66 pounds 13 shilling for, uh, what is this again? Shillings four or four pence would purchase in the present times. And a senior seller gave uh, for the sir mullet the command of a quantity equal to what 88 pounds 17 shilling and nine and third pence would purchase. What occasioned the extravagance of those high prices was not so much the abundance of silver as the abundance of labor and subsistence of which those Romans had the disposal beyond what was necessary for their own use. The quantity of silver of which they had the disposal was a good deal less than what, uh, than what the command of the same quantity of labor and subsistence would have procured to them in the present times. So... The rarity, because so this is the first sort, right, in which, in which humans can't do anything about making more of them, right? At that time, they couldn't, they couldn't grow more birds faster, and they couldn't make the field give them more. But in this case, we're talking about these birds, and so because they were scarce, they paid a lot more silver for it. Again, the whole idea about scarcity, and especially people's wealth and opulence wanting it because it's not as available. It's also another clue to the origin of money. Um, the su supply and demand being one of those basic tenets of uh, economics. But let's go on to the second sort. The second sort of rude produce, which the price rises in the progress of improvement, is that which human industry can multiply in proportion to the demand. It consists in those useful plants and animals which in uncultivated countries, nature produces with such profuse abundance that they are of little or no value, and which, as cultivation advances, are therefore forced to give place to some more profitable produce. During a long period in the progress of improvement, the quantity of these is continually diminishing, while at the same time, the demand for them is continually increasing. Their real value, therefore, the real quantity of labor which they will purchase or command gradually rises, till at last it gets so high as to render them as profitable a produce as anything else which human industry can raise upon the most fertile and best cultivated land. When it has got so high, it cannot well go higher. If it did, more land and more industry would soon be employed to increase their quantity. When the price of cattle, for example, rises so high that it is as possible, profitable to cultivate land in order to raise food for them as in order to raise food for a man, it will well go higher. If it did, more corn land would soon be turned into pasture. The extension of tillage, 
by diminishing the quantity of wild pasture diminishes the quantity of butcher's meat, which the country naturally produces without labor or cultivation, and by increasing the number of those who have either corn or, what comes to the same thing, the price of corn to give in exchange for it, increases the demand. These people just manipulating prices. The price of butcher's meat, therefore, and consequently of cattle, must gradually rise till it gets so high that it becomes as profitable to employ the most fertile and best cultivated lands in raising food for them as in raising corn. But it must always be late in the progress of improvement before tillage can be so far extended as to raise the price of cattle to this height, and toll it has got to this uh, and toll it has got to this height. If the country is advancing at all, their price must be continually rising. There are perhaps some parts of Europe in which the price of cattle has not yet got to this height. It had not got, it had not got to this height in any part of Scotland before the Union. Had the Scotch cattle been always confined to the market of Scotland in a country in which the quantity of land which can be applied to no other purpose but the feeding of cattle is so great in proportion to what can be applied to other purposes, it is scarce possible, perhaps, that their price could ever have risen so high as to render it profitable to cultivate land for the sake of feeding them. In England, the price of cattle, it has already been observed, seems in the neighborhood of London to have got to this height about the beginning of the last century. But it was much later, probably before it got to got to it through the greater part of the remoter counties, in some of which, perhaps, it may scarce yet have got to it. Of all the different substances, however, which compose this second sort of rude produce, cattle is, perhaps, that of which the price in the progress of improvement first rises to this height. Till the price of cattle, indeed, has got to this height, it seems scarce possible that the greater part, even of those lands which are capable of the highest cultivation, can be completely cultivated. In all farms too distant from any town to carry manure from it, that is, in the far greater part of those every, those every extensive country, the quantity of well-cultivated land must be in proportion to the quantity of manure which the farm itself produces, and this again must be in proportion to the stock of cattle which are maintained upon it. The land is manured either by pasturing the cattle upon it or by feeding them in the stable, and from thence carrying out their dung to it. But unless the price of the cattle be sufficient to pay both the rent and profit of cultivated land, the farmer cannot afford to pasture them upon it and he can still less afford to feed them in the stable. It is with the produce of improved and cultivated land only that cattle can be fed in the stable, because to collect the scanty and scattered produce of waste and unimproved lands would require too much labor and be too expensive. If the price of the cattle, therefore, is not sufficient to pay for the produce of improved and cultivated land, when they are allowed to pasture it, that price will still be less sufficient to pay for that produce when it must be collected with a good deal of additional labor and brought into the stable to them. In these circumstances, therefore, no more cattle can, with profit, 
be fed in the stable than what are necessary for tillage. But these can never afford manure enough for keeping constantly in good condition all the lands which are, they are capable of cultivating. What they afford, being insufficient for the whole farm, will naturally be reserved for the lands to which it can be most advantageously or conveniently applied, the most fertile, or those perhaps in the neighborhood of the farmyard. These, therefore, will be kept constantly in good condition and fit for tillage. The rest will, the greater part of them, be allowed to lie waste, producing scarce anything but some miserable pasture, just sufficient to keep alive a few straggling, half-starved cattle. The farm, though much understocked in proportion to what would necess be necessary for its complete cultivation, being very frequently overstocked in proportion to its actual produce. A proportion of this wasteland, however, after having been pastured in this wretched manner for six or seven years altogether, may be plowed up when it will yield perhaps a poor crop or two of bad oats. So uh, a portion of this wasteland, however, after being pastured in this wretched manner for six or seven years together, may be plowed up when it will yield perhaps a poor crop or two of bad oats or of some other coarse grain. And then, being entirely exhausted, it must be rested and pastured again before, and another portion plowed up to be in the same manner exhausted and rested again in its turn. Such, accordingly, was the general system of management all over the low country of Scotland before the Union. The lands which were kept constantly well manured, and if you don't know what Union he's talking about, it's a... Uh, the uh, Great Britain, right? The Union Jack. Oh boy. <clears throat> Such accordingly was the general system of management all over the low country of Scotland before the Union. The lands which were kept constantly well manured and in good condition seldom exceeded a third or a fourth part of the whole farm and sometimes did not amount to a fifth or sixth part of it. The rest were never manured, but a certain portion of them was in its turn, notwithstanding, regularly cultivated and exhausted. Under this system of management, it is evident that even that part of the land of Scotland, 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 well, that's where Scotch comes from, right? So under this system of management, it is evident even that part of the lands of Scotland, which is capable of good cultivation, could produce but little in comparison of what it may be capable of producing. But how disadvantageous soever this system may appear, yet before the union, the low price of cattle seems to have rendered it almost unavoidable. Before the union, notice how the, all of these things are, are, are related to each other, right? The, the state influence, people's arbitrary BS about how much they value things that, they, that seem to be scarce, like, and I'm not talking about cows and corn and wheat and stuff like that, those things people need, right? But silver and gold and the price is high to it. And then the prices were lower before the union, right? Before government got involved. Right, in a certain way, right? But let's, let's continue. If notwithstanding a great rise in their price, it still continues to prevail through a considerable part of the country. It is owing, in many places, no doubt, to ignorance and attachment to old customs, but in most places to the unavoidable obstructions which the natural course of things opposes to the immediate or speedy establishment of a better system. 
First, to the poverty of the tenants, to their not having yet had time to acquire a stock of cattle sufficient to cultivate their lands more completely, the same rise of price, which would render it advantageous for them to maintain a greater stock, rendering it more difficult for them to acquire it, and secondly, to their not having yet had time to put their lands in condition to maintain this greater stock properly, supposing they were capable of acquiring the, I mean, this is so crazy, right? Nature, of course, slows things down, like the, like the cattle. I mean, you can't grow them faster, but now, of course, we figured that out too, right? So besides CAFOs, we have genetic modification, hormones injected, and everything like that, and speeding that up, right? Continuing. The increase of stock and the improvement of land are two events which must go hand in hand, and of which one can go nowhere much, one can go Hold on. The increase of stock and the improvement of land are two events which must go hand in hand, and of which the one can nowhere much outrun the other. The increase of stock and the improvement of land must go hand in hand, and of which the one can nowhere much outrun the other. Without some increase of stock, there can be scarce any improvement of land. But there can be no considerable increase of stock, but in consequence of a considerable improvement of land. Hmm. Because otherwise, the land could not maintain it. These natural obstructions to the establishment of a better system cannot be removed, but by a long course of frugality and industry. And half a century or century more, perhaps, must pass away before the old system, which is wearing out, gradually can be completely abolished through all the different parts of the country of all the commercial advantages however which scotland has derived from the union with england hmm, of all the commercial advantages however which scotland has derived from the union with england this rise in price of cattle is perhaps the greatest it has not only raised the value of all highland estates, but it has, perhaps, been the principal cause of the improvement of the low country. Oh, see, hear that again? Hey, Colonel. How you doing, brother? Uh, I'm doing well, Colonel. Good to see you over here. Um, Colin, well, <clears throat> since I'm saying hi to you real quick, I'll take a look over on Wisdom. Hello, uh, Christine Marcian, Soldier of God, Terry. Hello, Penny Frampton Doobie. What's up? Author Nicole S. Brown, Truly Julie. Hello, The Fake Imposter. What's up? Andrew Johnson, T. Bert Owen, and Ben Tran. What's up, everybody? I'm, I'm plowing through this uh, today. <clears throat> so I wanna, this is a very long read, so I got to get it done. All right, so let's see. Continuing here. But, okay, listen to that again, right? Of all the commercial advantages, however, which Scotland has derived from the union with England, this rise in the price of cattle is perhaps the greatest. So a union with another country raised the prices, and this is a good thing? Like, I mean, you've got to understand how, how insane some of these things are, that are happening. I, I, I'm going to go into a completely separate rant about all of this stuff at a different time because the more and more these things are becoming clear by the fact that I'm reading in tandem so many different books and alternative theories about economics and money at the same time and how the pieces are being put together and then talking to, to some very intelligent people and some rather idiotic ones as well, how all of these things are, um, are making more and more sense. But he says, the price of cattle 
is perhaps the greatest uh, of the commercial advantages that happened when they united with England, right? The United Kingdom. It has not only raised the value of all Highland estates, but it has perhaps been the principal cause of the improvement of the low country. In all new colonies of great quantity of wasteland, which can for many years be applied to no other purpose but the feeding of cattle, soon renders them extremely abundant, and in everything great cheapness is the necessary consequence of great abundance. Huh. And in everything great cheapness is the necessary consequence of great abundance. Though all the cattle of the European colonies in America were originally carried from Europe, they soon multiplied so much there and became of so little value that even horses were allowed to run wild in the woods without any owner thinking it worthwhile to claim them. It must be a long time. <laughs> like, like we have the right to claim anything. Claiming horses. That's hilarious. Though all the cattle of the European colonies in America originally carried from Europe, they soon multiplied so much there and became of so little value that even horses were allowed to run wild in the woods without any owner thinking it worthwhile to claim them. It must be a long time after the first establishment of such colonies before it can become profitable to feed cattle upon the produce of cultivated land. The same causes, therefore, the want of manure and the disproportion between the stock employed in cultivation and the land which it is destined to cultivate are likely to introduce there a system of husbandry not unlike that which still continues to take place in so many parts of Scotland. Mr. Calm, spelled K-A-L-M, the Swedish traveler, when he gives an account of the husbandry of some of the English colonies in North America, as he found in 1749, observes accordingly that he can with difficulty discover there the character of the English nation, so well skilled in all the different branches of agriculture. Hmm. That he can with difficulty discover there the character of English nation, so well skilled in all the different branches of agriculture. They make scarce any manure for their cornfields, he says, but when one piece of ground has been exhausted by continual cropping, they clear and cultivate another piece of fresh land, and when that is exhausted, proceed to a third. Their cattle are allowed to wander through the woods and other uncultivated grounds where they are half starved, having long ago extirpated almost all the annual grasses by cropping them too nearly in the spring before they had time to form their flowers or to shed their seeds. See, this is another thing that's being done too. So besides now being able to grow cattle of all kinds, right, faster, genetic engineering, so on and so forth, and putting them in capos, right, the confined animal feeding operations, uh, what else are they doing? Feeding them different kind of stuff that they would never eat before, which is not grass, but all kind of stuff like soy and corn and things like that that they ground up in the meal, and also adding and injecting hormones to that stuff as well. Look, look at that, right? Because they, you can't just they eat so much grass. The annual grasses where it seems the best natural grasses in that part of North America, and when the Europeans first settled there, they used to grow very thick and to rise three or four feet high. A piece of ground which, when he wrote, could not maintain one cow would in former times, he was assured, have maintained four, 
each of which would have given four times the quantity of milk that one was capable of giving. The poorness of the pasture. So listen to that. So not only in times past was the grass so high and thick that it would feed four cows, but each of those four cows could produce four times the milk of one cow in the present time that that land can feed just because they're starving so much because of the grass they eat so much. That's ridiculous. Make sure I'm reading that correctly, right? He says, a piece of ground which, when he wrote, could not maintain one cow, would in former times, he was assured, have maintained four, each of which would have given four times the quantity of milk that one was capable of giving. The poorness of the pasture had, in his opinion, occasioned the degradation of their cattle, which degenerated sensibly from one generation to another. They were probably not unlike that stunted breed which was common all over Scotland 30 or 40 years ago, and which is now so much mended, though the, through the greater part of the low country, not so much by a change of the breed, though that expedient has been employed in some places, as by a more plentiful method of breeding them. Okay, look at that. Early, early significations of them trying to improve the cultivation of the livestock, right? Um, by uh, certain breeding, right? Early hints of genetic engineering. And, uh, and um, what he said, as by a more plentiful, plentiful method of feeding them. Oh, I thought it said breeding, it was feeding them. But see, there again, also the different kinds of things that they used to feed them now, they're not uh, their natural foodstuffs. All right, that's a. I'm wearing my contacts for the first time in a long time, and I had to re-wet them. Not the best for my reading. All right, but continuing here. Though it is late, therefore, in the progress of improvement before cattle, before cattle can bring such a price as to render it profitable to cultivate land for the sake of feeding them. Yet all, of all the different parts which compose this second sort of rude produce, they are perhaps the first which bring this price, because till they bring it, it seems po impossible that improvement can be brought near even to that degree of perfection to which it has arrived in many parts of Europe. You do realize that all of this would be unnecessary if people weren't putting fences around things, right? They, all of these price changes and territorial things that are happening, right? Like you said, the price of, of cattle improved when, when, with the union of Scotland and Britain, right? Becoming the United Kingdom, right? When you said the union, those are some of the, the crazy issues going on there, right? That's really, really amazing. Uh, just how simple human manipulation can get in the way of all that. All right, so continuing here. So... As cattle are among the first, so perhaps, uh, so perhaps venison is among the last parts of this sort of rude produce which bring this price. The price of venison in Great Britain, how extravagant soever it may appear, is not near sufficient to compensate the expense of a deer park, as, it is, as is well known to all those who have had any experience in the feeding of deer. If it was otherwise... The feeding of deer would soon become an article of common farming in the same manner as the feeding of those small birds called turdy was among the ancient Romans. Varro and Columella 
columella, yet assure us that it was a most profitable article. The fattening of ortolans, birds of passage which arrive lean in the country, is said to be so in some parts of France. If venison continues in fashion, and the wealth and luxury of Great Britain increase as they have done for some time past, its price may very probably rise still higher than it is at present. Between that period and the progress of improvement which brings to its height the price of so necessary an article of cattle, and that which brings to it the price of such a super, superfluity of venison, there is a very long interval in the course of which many other sorts of food produce gradually arrive at their highest price, some sooner and some later according to different circumstances. Hmm. All right. Thus, in every form, the offals of the barn and stables will maintain a certain number of poultry. These, as they are fed with what would otherwise be lost, are a mere save-all, and as they cost the farmer scarce anything, so he can afford to sell them for very little. Almost all that he gets is pure gain, and their price can scarce be so low as to discourage him from feeding this number. But in, all, but in countries ill-cultivated, and therefore but thinly inhabited, the poultry, which are thus raised without expense, are often fully sufficient to supply the whole demand. In this state of things, therefore, they are often as cheap as butcher's meat, or any other sort of animal food. Oh, wow, that's butcher's meat and other animal foods were cheap back in the day? Is that what he's trying to tell us? They try to make it uh, seem like it's so much more now. All right, well, continuing. They are often as cheap as butcher's meat or any other sort of animal, animal food. But the whole quantity of poultry which the farm in this manner produces without expense must always be much smaller than the whole quantity of butcher's meat which is reared upon it. And in times of wealth and luxury, what is rare, with only nearly equal merit, is always preferred to what is common. As wealth and luxury increase, therefore, in consequence of improvement and cultivation, the price of poultry, poultry gradually rises above that of butcher's meat, till at last it gets so high that it becomes profitable to cultivate land for the sake of feeding them. When it has got to this height, it cannot well go higher. If it did, more land would soon be turned to this purpose. In several provinces of France, the feeding of poultry is considered as a very important article in rural economy and sufficiently profitable to encourage the farmer to raise a considerable quantity of Indian corn and buckwheat for this purpose. Oh, uh, by the way, hello, Reza. I see you there as well. How are you doing? And I'm not a coder, by the way. So, all right, continue. Uh, buckwheat, da, da, da. So in several provinces in France, the feeding of poultry is considered as a very important article in rural economy and sufficiently profitable to encourage the farmer to raise a considerable quantity of Indian corn and buckwheat for this purpose. A middling farmer will there sometimes have 400 fowls in his yard. The feeding of poultry seems scarce yet to be generally considered as a matter of so much importance in England. They are certainly, however, dearer in England than in France, as England receives considerable supplies from France. 
In the progress of improvement, the period at which every particular sort of animal food is dearest must naturally be that at which immediately precedes the general practice of cultivating land for the sake of raising it. Right, so when it, it's these things keep rising in proportion with each other when it, when you, when the price of the meat because it's scarce, right, is uh, demanded because it's demanded more because it's scarce and people want more of it. They're like, we want more fowl, and people start paying more money for it. Then they say, okay, now we need to start cultivating more land just to feed these freaking things, and then the price goes up with that too because now you have to factor in the price of the additional land that's being used in order to cultivate these right is that what we're hearing so right he says a middling farmer will bear sometimes have 400 fowls in his yard right the feeding of poultry seems scarce yet to be generally considered as a matter of so much importance in england now you've talked about france before they are certainly however dearer or more expensive in England than in France, right? As England receives a considerable, considerable supplies from France. That's why it's more expensive, right? Because they have to get imported. In the progress of improvement, the period at which every particular sort of animal food is dearest, right, most expensive, must naturally be that which immediately precedes the general practice of cultivating land for the sake of raising it, right? Once again, Right, the period at which every particular sort of animal food is most expensive, that period, right, where it's more expensive, must naturally be that which immediately proceeds, so it comes right before the general practice of cultivating land for the sake of raising it, right? It becomes so expensive, the time when it becomes more expensive, that comes right before the time when they start cultivating land for the raising of it, right? For some time before this practice becomes general, the scarcity must necessarily raise the price. After it has become general, new methods of feeding are commonly fallen upon, which enable the farmer to raise upon the same quantity of ground a much greater quantity of that particular sort of animal food. Man, since the 1700s, right, they were, they were already looking, how the hell are we going to do this? How are we going to fatten up and feed more of these animals so we can sell them for more money? Right? You see what has happened with everything? Just like with the precious metals, everything. This is the origin and use of money. Right? At first it started to, as, as, as innovations to feed people, to, to, clothe, to give people clothing, food, and shelter. And then, well, continuing. The plenty not only obliges him to sell cheaper, but in consequence of these improvements, he can afford to sell cheaper. For if he could not afford it, the plenty would not be long of, of long continuance. It has been probably in this manner that the introduction of clover, turnips, carrots, cabbages, etc., has contributed to sink the common price of butcher's meat in the London market somewhat below what it was about the beginning of the last century. Why? What is this? Look what happens. After it has become general, new methods of feeding are commonly fallen upon, which enable the farmer to raise upon the same quantity of ground a much greater quantity of that particular sort of animal food. 
The plenty not only obliges him to sell cheaper, but in consequence of these improvements, he can afford to sell cheaper. For if he could not afford it, the plenty would not be of long continuance. It has been probably in this manner that the introduction of clover, turnips, carrots, cabbage, etc., has contributed to sink the common price of butcher's meat in the London market somewhat below what it was about the beginning of the last century. Continuing, the hog that finds his food among ordure and greedily devours many things rejected by every other useful animal. That's why I don't dig on swine, y'all. I don't eat no fucking pigs. <laughs> They're dirty, right? The hog that finds his food among ordure and greedily devours many things rejected by every other useful animal is, like poultry, originally kept as a save-all. As long as the number of such animals, which can thus be reared at little or no expense, is fully sufficient to supply the demand, this sort of butcher's meat comes to market at a much lower price than any other. Yeah, it's pigs, guys. It's gross. Stop eating all that thing. You can eat whatever you want. I don't care. I'm just not eating it. But when the demand rises beyond what this quantity can supply, when it becomes necessary to raise food on purpose for feeding and fattening hogs, in the same manner as for feeding and fattening other cattle, the price necessarily rises and becomes proportionally either higher or lower than that of other butcher's meat according to the nature of the country and the state of its agriculture happen to render the feeding of hogs more or less expensive than that of other cattle. In France, according to Mr. Buffon, the price... Huh, Buffon. I'll just put one more O in there. The price in France, according to Mr. Buffon, the price of pork is nearly equal to that of beef. In most parts of Great Britain, it is at present somewhat higher. The great rise in the price of both hogs and poultry has in Great Britain been frequently inputted or has frequently imputed to the diminution of the number of cottages and other small occupiers of land, an event which has in every part of Europe been the immediate forerunner of improvement and better cultivation but which at that time, or at the same time, may have contributed to raise the price of those articles, both somewhat sooner and somewhat faster than it would otherwise have risen. As the poorest family can often maintain a cat or dog without any expense, so the poorest occupiers of land can commonly maintain a few poultry, or a sow and a few pigs at very little. The little offals of their own table, their way, skimmed milk and buttermilk supply those animals with a part of their food and they find the rest in the neighboring fields without doing any sensible damage to anybody by diminishing the number of those small occupiers therefore the quantity of this sort of provisions which is thus produced at little or no expense must certainly have been a good deal diminished and their price must consequently have been raised both sooner and faster than it otherwise may have risen Sooner or later, however, in the progress of improvement, it must at any rate have risen to the utmost height to which it is capable of rising, or to the price which pays the labor and expense of cultivating the land which furnishes them with food, as well as these are paid upon the greater part of other cultivated land. What? Hmm. 
in the progress of improvement, it must at any rate have risen to the utmost height to which it is capable of rising, or to the price which pays the labor and expense of cultivating the land, which furnishes them with food, as well as these are paid upon the greater part of other cultivated land. Good Lord. Just adding prices everywhere to do stuff. <clears throat> the business of the dairy, like the feeding of hogs and poultry, is originally carried on as a save-all. The cattle, necessarily, kept upon the farm, produce, produce more milk than either the rearing of their own young or the consumption of the farmer's family requires. And they produce most... Oh, boy. I think I need to change out these. These lenses. This is not the best thing for me to be reading this with. All right. Okay. The business of the of of the dairy, like the feeding of hogs and poultry, is originally carried on as a save all. The cattle, necessarily kept upon the farm, produce more milk than either the rearing of their own young or the consumption of the farmer's family requires, and they produce most at one particular season. They produce most at one particular season. But of all the productions of land, milk is perhaps the most perishable. Of all the productions of land, milk is perhaps the most perishable, of course. I mean, it's... Uh, it spoils pretty quickly. I don't know what kind of what kind of ice boxes or refrigerators they had back then, right? Very poor storage, cold storage. In the warm season, when it is most abundant, it will scarce keep four and twenty hours. Twenty-four hours. The farm, by making it into fresh butter, stores a small part of it for a week. By making it into salt butter for a year. And by making it into cheese, he stores a much greater part of it for several years. Part of all these is reserved for the use of his own family. The rest goes to market in order to find the best price which is to be had and which can scarce be so low as to discourage him from sending thither whatever is over and above the use of his own family. Yeah, and which can scarce be so low as to discourage him from sending thither whatever is over and above the use of his own family. If why did he have to use the word thither? For sending why can't he just say there? From sending there <laughs> whatever is over and above the use of his own family. If I mean I suppose it's only when was the uh, King James Version of the Bible? Was it like sixteen ten or something like that? Right? Forget. So this is, you know, a little more than a hundred years afterwards. Um, if it is very low, indeed, he will be likely to manage his dairy in a very slovenly and dirty manner, and will scarce perhaps think it worthwhile to have a particular room or building or purpose for it, but will suffer the business to be carried on amidst the smoke, filth, and nastiness of his own kitchen, as was the case of almost all the farmers' dairies in Scotland 30 or 40 years ago, and as is the case of many of them still. That's gross. <laughs> did, he, did you hear what he just said? <laughs> or he just wrote? He's like, he's like, because the price is so low, right, that it's over and above the use of his own family. He said, if it is very low indeed, he will be likely to manage his dairy 
in a very slovenly and dirty manner, and will scarce perhaps think it worthwhile to have a particular room or building or purpose for it, but will suffer the business to be carried on amidst the smoke, filth, and nastiness of his own kitchen. So what the hell? People's kitchens were filled with smoke, filth, and nastiness, as was the, as was the case of almost all the farmers' dairies in Scotland 30, 40 years ago, as is the case of many of them still. That's, that's gross. The, don't drink milk. <laughs> Those people are drinking milk in the smoke, filth, and nastiness of their own kitchens. That's some, that's some, hard, some hard criticism of the Scottish. The smoke, filth, and nastiness of their own kitchen. Oh, boy. Okay. Continuing. Um, the same causes which gradually raise the price of butcher's meat, the increase of the demand, and, in consequence, the improvement of the country, the diminution of the quantity which can be fed at little or no expense, raise, in the same manner, that of the produce of the dairy of which the price naturally connects with that of the butcher's meat or with the expense of feeding cattle. The increase of price pays for labor, care, and cleanliness. The dairy becomes more worthy of the farmer's attention and the quality of its produce gradually improves. The price at last gets so high that it becomes worthwhile to employ some of the most fertile and best cultivated lands in feeding cattle merely for the purpose of the dairy. And when it has got to this height, it cannot well go higher. If it did, more land would soon be turned to this purpose. It seems to have got to this height through the greater part of England, where much good land is commonly employed in this manner. If you accept the neighborhood of a few considerable towns, it seems not yet to have got to this height anywhere in Scotland, where common farmers seldom employ much good land in raising food for cattle merely for the purpose of the dairy. The price of the produce, though it has risen very considerably within these few years, is probably still too low to admit of it. The inferiority of the quality, indeed compared with that of the produce of the English dairies, is fully equal to that of the price. But this inferior inferiority of quality is perhaps rather the effect of this lowness of price than the cause of it. Though the quality was much better, the greater part of what is brought to market could not, I apprehend, in the present circumstance of the country, be disposed of at a much better price, and, and the present price, it is probable, would not pay the expense of the land and labor necessary for producing a much better quality. Though through the greater part of England, notwithstanding the superiority of price, the dairy is not reckoned a more profitable employment of land than the raising of corn or the fattening of cattle, the two great objects of agriculture. Through the greater part of Scotland, therefore, it cannot yet be even so profitable. The lands of no country, it is evident can ever be completely cultivated and improved till once the price of every produce which human industry is obliged to raise upon them has got so high as to pay for the expense of the complete improvement and cultivation. In order to do this, the price of 
Each particular produce must be sufficient, first to pay the rent of good corn land, and it is that which regulates the rent of the greater part of other cultivated land, and secondly, to pay the labor and expense of the farmer as well as they are commonly paid upon good corn land, or in other words, to replace with the ordinary profits the stock which he employs about it. This rise in the price of each particular produce must evidently be be previous to the improvement and cultivation of the land which is destined for raising it. Gain is the end of all improvement, and nothing could deserve that name of which loss was to be the necessary consequence. Gain is the end of all improvement, and nothing could deserve the, that name, the name improvement, of which loss was to be the necessary consequence. But loss must be the necessary consequence of improving land for the sake of a produce which the price could never bring back the expense. If the complete improvement and cultivation of the country be, as it most certainly is, the greatest of all public advantages, this rise in the price of all those different sorts of rude produce, instead of being considered as a public calamity, ought to be regarded as the necessary forerunner and attendant to the greatest of all public advantages. This rise, too, in the nominal or money price of all those different sorts of rude produce has been the effect not of any degradation in the value of silver, but in the rise in their real price. They have become worth not only a greater quantity of silver, but a greater quantity of labor and subsistence than before. As it costs a greater quantity of labor and subsistence to bring them to market, so when they are brought thither, they represent or are equivalent to a greater quantity. Okay. Okay, the third sort. Oh boy, this is, this is a lot. Adam Smith, what are you doing? You know, let's see, what time am I at here? I'm at an hour. Uh, I need to, I'm definitely going to uh, break here then. And uh, do, because book two is after this. And this is the third sword in this section. And after the third sword is pretty long, as well as it has uh, another section in here called the effects of progress of improvement upon the real price of manufacturers. And then it goes a few pages, and then the conclusions of this chapter. This is insane. This is, chapter 11 of this has been quite uh, involved, and I'm about uh, I'm about done. An hour is all I'm going to do on this at a time. I just it's, I have to digest this, and then uh, also change my spectacles back again. So, all right, that's it. Wealth Attraction Research. That was, uh, you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, Respective Values, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Call-In Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Equilibrium. 
This reading focuses come to us from The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Chapter 11's Part 3, which has the wonderful name of Of the Variations in the Proportion Between the Respective Values of That Sort of Produce Which Always Affords Rent and of That Which Sometimes Does and Sometimes Does Not Afford Rent. The final part of this, which is the third sort and the conclusion in that other section, which is uh, called Effects of the Progress of Improvement Upon the Real Price of Manufacturers, will be coming up in just a few moments.